Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this week's episode, in the bluest region of a blue state, many people were feeling decidedly, deeply, unhappily blue last week after the presidential election of Donald J. Trump. That state of mind coincided with the third annual production of Ampersand Live, a gathering of poets, artists, and storytellers keen on preserving and celebrating the fragile bond between society and nature in the Pacific Northwest. Ampersand Magazine is a production of Forterra, a Seattle-based conservation and community-building organization. This gathering of local speakers and performers took place on November 10th at Town Hall Seattle. Thanks to Jenny Cecil Moore for our recording. I'm Gene Duvernoy, president of Forterra. We host this event. Now, before we start, I want to acknowledge the political earthquake that has really shaken our country. Acknowledge it, yes, but also claim this evening for the Pacific Northwest community. Yeah. For <laughs> Man, you guys are going to be a good crowd. So tonight, we are going to bring you perspectives from people all across the Pacific Northwest about the resiliency of this place and us and about how together we care for ourselves and this place. We believe these stories need to be told now more than ever. This election has really brought home how deeply divided this country is. But here in the Pacific Northwest, we still know how to, how to get together on, and find common ground and come together. So thank you for being part of that. Now let's start Ampersand Live. Hi. Hi. Uh, my name is David Schmader. Hello. God damn it. Um, we're not going to get into that. I just want to do one thing. Um, okay, everyone... I need to do this thing for me. Uh, please stand. If you're unable to stand, stand in your heart. Uh, take the hand of the person next to you, both sides, uh, and I'm just going to do a roll call. We can't do everyone individually. We just want to do unmask. When I say Seattle, you say here. Seattle? Here. Thank you. That's all I needed. <sighs> all right. Hi. So... Um, I'm a writer and performer and a movie maker funner of her, and I have lived in this region for 25 years. Long enough to have heard several distinct cycles of complaints that Seattle's losing its soul. Smart people will say conclusively, Seattle lost its soul. And whenever I hear someone say this, I want to say, what the hell are you talking about? And that's led me to ask myself, what the hell are people talking about? And I figure a good first step in determining is figuring out what you mean when you say a soul of a city. And the best answer that I've been able to come up with is that the soul of the city is what you first loved about a place, or the city as it was when you first fell in love with it. Um, I moved here in 1991, and for me, the soul of Seattle existed primarily in a four-block radius of Broadway on Capitol Hill 
which not only held the lesbian-owned independent bookstore where I worked, but also my favorite independent record store, Orpheum, and my first favorite Thai restaurant, Siam, and the gorgeous art house cinema, The Harvard Exit. It was... I was, I was from far west Texas. I was amazed to live someplace where they sold pizza by the slice. I was like, cosmopolitan! Uh, it was everything I needed all in one place. And of course, this utopia resided within the larger utopia of the natural world. And the fact that I could exit the progressive lesbian bookstore and make a 15-minute drive to watch a sunset at Golden Gardens was key to what I considered the soul of the city. All of the establishments I just mentioned that made me love Seattle are now gone, as is the possibility of making a 15-minute drive from Capitol Hill to Golden Gardens. But the soul of the city lives on for me in a zillion other ways. Seattle continues to offer top-flight culture and progressive humanity and now legal weed, while surrounded by glorious natural experiences on all sides. It may not be exactly what I fell in love with, but it is all still here, and every new arrival finds their own soul of the city. And tonight we will celebrate this soul by giving voice to a slew of people who fuel it and sustain it and enjoy it. Uh, thank you so much for coming. Let's get started. Hello, it's a, a real honor to be here with you tonight. Uh, my name is John Grotti, and I'm going to very briefly share a project with you, a sculptural project that was inspired by a desire to um, begin by casting a live tree. And I went into the forest uh, near the middle fork of the Snoqualmie River to find that tree. And I was looking for a tree that felt sort of typical. Um, I wanted it to be a fairly mature tree, but I wasn't looking for a tree that was unusual and sort of romantic. Um, and had the option of potentially making a digital scan of this tree, which would have taken two hours, but much more impractically uh, decided to do a plaster cast of the tree. Uh, <laughs> Fortunately, I had a, a gang of help uh, to embark upon this very um, impractical venture. It took, uh, it took about uh, two weeks for a dozen of us to slowly cast this tree. So you can see we were protecting the tree and with a thick foil and laying these layers of plaster on the tree. Um, when I sort of cooked up this idea of being up and hanging in this tree, I was imagining these sort of intimate moments of getting to know the tree. But... Um, we've got a drone flying around us, so it's a little bit of a circus, and I didn't quite have that, that level of, of kind of reflective quality, but I did get to know certain nuances of the tree. Um, and it was an important thing for me to think about how I could share that experience with other people. One of the things that I find most compelling uh, about projects is how to get other people to engage with me, especially this sort of large-scale project. What we're seeing here are the molds that we took of this tree brought back to uh, an institution that's new to Seattle, relatively speaking, called Mad Art Studios. This is looking at the outside of the space. It's a terrific place. Um, this was the inaugural project for this space, and what we did is we opened up these large doors, these glass doors, and invited people just happening to pass by uh, to participate in making the project. And in order to do that, what we decided to make was this thin skin of wood using uh, reclaimed cedar. And we built this very intricate skin over this mold of the tree. And the skin of this tree is made by all of these small individual blocks. So a person is given a small pallet of these blocks. They choose each of these pieces. And with 
the greatest fidelity they can muster, they try to keep a sense of that mold. So they're really understanding a, a small nuance of the tree. It's a, a very slow process. Um, so you might get done in four hours uh, an area about this big. Um, over the past uh, two years, this project's been going on. There have been more than 1,000 people helping to work on the project. Um, we showed the project uh, when the tree form had become about 40 feet long in the same space in which we made it. Um, and then uh, we took the, the piece on the road to the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. This is a, a bit of video showing what happens after all of the different people are contributing by building and gluing these blocks together. And it's a, a kind of a refining. And the challenge with this was to not take away too much of the individual nuance because the people working on this project all kind of go their own way. You have a sort of a set direction that you're hoping people will take. Um, but you'll find as you look at the piece, uh, this is the images of the piece as it was installed in the Smithsonian. So we're seeing it at about 50 feet in length here. Each time it goes to a new venue, it's growing. Um, the piece will be shown at the Seattle Art Museum in about two and a half months. And when it gets to the Seattle Art Museum and the, and the entry to the museum, it will be about 105 feet long. And at that point, there will probably be close to a million of these individual pieces that we've put together. Thank you. And I'll, I will close here just so you have a sense of moving through the piece a little bit. This is looking through the wide end, so you're about 10 feet across. And I'll close with this video. The one thing I also want to mention is it will continue to go to a number of other venues and sort of represent our region in a small way. Um, but after it's done being shown at a number of these different locations, we're going to take the sculpture back to the living tree that it was cast from, lay it on the forest floor, and let it moss over and slowly disintegrate into the ground. So, thank you. Next up, photographer Amy Gullick is the author of Salmon in the Trees, Life in Alaska's Tungus Rainforest. Curiosity. <laughs> Curiosity drives me to get out of bed every day. It also drives people mad with my endless questions of why things are the way they are. Why is the sky blue? Why are no two snowflakes ever the same? And why are there salmon in trees? It is this last question I spent several years of my life pursuing at the start. All I knew was that I needed to go to Alaska, a mind-boggling state in its enormity. The part I needed to go to? The rainforest of Alaska. Not typically what comes to mind when we think of the 49th state. Most of this rainforest is in southeast Alaska, also known as the Inside Passage or the Panhandle of the state. 80% of southeast, everything you see in green, is the Tongass National Forest. With 17 million acres, about the size of the state of West Virginia, the Tongass is our country's largest national forest, and it's home to one-third of the world's remaining old-growth coastal temperate rainforest. This is a place where the line is blurred between where the forest ends and the sea begins. So you'll see things here like bears digging for clams on the beaches, Humpback whales cruise right along the forested shorelines. And marbled murelets, a seabird that nests high in old-growth forests and feeds in the ocean. The Tongass is home to one of the highest densities of brown bears in the world, the highest density of black bears, and the world's largest nesting density of bald eagles. Why so many? Well, there's an abundance of food, uh, particularly salmon. 
Salmon are born in freshwater streams and rivers. They head out to the oceans to mature, and then they return to their birth streams as adults to spawn the next generation. There are 5,000 salmon spawning streams in the Tongass National Forest, and how each fish finds its way back to the exact stream where it was born has got to be one of the greatest feats of nature. Salmon help grow at least 50 different species, uh, among them uh, bears, stellar sea lions, and homo sapiens. <laughs> Salmon help grow the native cultures that have thrived along these forested shores since time immemorial. Salmon grow the local communities. Uh, the commercial salmon fishery in Alaska is one of the world's best examples of a sustainable fishery, and it's a critical part of the economy. Salmon also help grow trees. In fact, they are in the trees. Well, how can this be? Well, bears have a lot to do with this. Uh, bears don't like being around other bears, so when they catch a fish, they will often carry it away from the stream and into the woods. Researchers say that one bear can carry 40 fish from a stream in just eight hours. So let's think about this for a minute. There's 5,000 spawning streams, some of the world's highest densities of both brown and black bears, and millions and millions of wild salmon. You do the math. That adds up to a lot of salmon dragged and dropped into the forest. Other animals scavenge on these carcasses, spreading the nutrients farther throughout the forest. Well, guess what happens? All of this rich fish fertilizer decomposes into the soil, and the trees and other vegetation absorb it through their roots. Scientists have actually been able to trace a particular form of marine nitrogen. It comes from the ocean. It's called nitrogen-15. They've been able to trace this in trees near spawning streams that it's brought by salmon, delivered by bears, and absorbed by plants. That is how salmon end up in the trees. And the trees return the favor by shading the streams, creating protected pools, and feeding insects that then feed the young salmon. So once you understand this remarkable connection between salmon and trees, you quickly see that everything here is still connected. It's astounding in the 21st century. This connection between salmon and trees uh, resulted in my first book, um, and thanks to Elliott Bay Books, it is out in the lobby. Um, it also really, really opened my eyes uh, to my own home here in the Pacific Northwest. North America's original coastal temperate rainforest uh, once extended intact all the way from south-central Alaska through the Pacific Northwest and down into northern California. Today, about 44% has been affected by urban development, logging, or farming. So anywhere where you see in red, um, those original forests are gone. But wait, you ask, we have forests and salmon here, right? Yes, we do, but we have less than 10% of our old-growth forests and historical salmon runs. But we eat salmon here, right? Yes, we do, and we love it here. But most wild salmon that we consume here are coming from Alaska. Now, I don't point this out. <laughs> I don't point this out to bum you out. I've spent a lot of time going back and forth between here and southeast Alaska. The similarities are striking, but so are the differences. Flying north, I'm hurled back to what Washington once was just a mere 150 years ago, a thriving intact ecosystem. Coming home, I'm thrust back into what could be the future of the Tongass, given enough time. It's why I made the book, There's Still Time, to not make the same mistakes in Alaska that we did here. But what about here? Are we out of time? I don't think so. Will we ever get it all back? Eh, I don't think so. 
But I also didn't think that in my lifetime in our beloved Northwest that we'd see the day when the Elwha Dams on the Olympic Peninsula came crashing down. <laughs> and salmon returning home to that beautiful river as it rewilds itself. The Elwha Dam removal has opened up the very real possibilities of removing other significant barriers to salmon recovery. Can we do this here? I think so. Can the Northwest once again be a place where there are salmon in the trees? Thank you. Up next at Ampersand Live, biologist, author, and Guggenheim fellow, Thor Hansen. They always put the short guy after the tall people. Thank you. I, I brought with me tonight the, uh, the skull of a beaver, uh, cleaned to uh, museum quality by the larvae of dermestid beetles. This is really great. If you have a dirty old skull of any kind that you need to clean up, you, you just you put it in a bucket full of these little flesh-eating larvae, and they just clean it right up like this for free. It's fantastic. So... I highly recommend those uh, dermestid larvae if you have any skulls you need to clean. Now, we're going to come back to that skull in a minute. But first, I have to tell you that I have been experiencing what can only be called career whiplash. I don't know if you've had this experience, but when your job starts changing so fast, it kind of makes your head spin. Now, I trained as a biologist, you know, the sort of person concerned with these maggot and skull questions. But my interest in the storytelling of science led me to start writing books about natural history. Okay, fair enough. But recently this thing has taken a turn that I never saw coming. It all started a few years ago when my wife and I had a child, which, as any parent will tell you, is a lot more than just getting a new roommate. Children change the story of your life, and if you are a storyteller, well, then they they change the stories that you tell. In fact, they even change the words that you use. Like a lot of parents, when Noah came into our lives, I decided that I had to clean up my language a little bit, uh, and I thought I did a pretty good job. I I settled on the word crap. I, I could say crap, right? It's not so bad, and it's still kind of satisfying to say it. (laughs) And Noah, I mean, he thinks this is hilarious, right? He loves this word because he knows whenever he hears Papa saying crap and crap uh, that I'm really getting worked up about something. Uh, So he and I uh, were going fishing recently, and we were uh, looking through the rule book for for fishing, uh, the Washington State regulations there, and they've got a page where they show pictures of all the different fish that you might be able to catch. And sure enough, there's one in there called the crappy. <laughs> I looked at that. I thought, oh, man, he is going to love this. So, hey, buddy, what's, uh, what's that one there? Because he's learning to read, right? And he looks at it, and he can't quite make it out. And he, he says, I don't know, Papa. And I said, oh, I think you do. It's, it's a word that you've heard Papa say. And he, he looks at it again, and he says, Jesus Christ? <laughs> I 
So maybe my words haven't changed as much as I thought they had. But I do know that my writing has changed. I I can assure you that it has because my writing has begun to rhyme. (laughs) My son loves rhymes, right? So it's been the most natural thing in the world for me to start writing rhyming stories for my son. And now these things have started coming out as books. And I, I find myself at these events where people don't know me as a scientist or even as a nature writer. They know me as a children's book author. It's all a little bit disorienting. I mean, I can't, even, I can't even tidy up my desk anymore without becoming really confused. I had this stack of papers the other day, I was sorting through, and, and I come across one that, uh, that I wrote a few years ago, and the title of it was Characterization of Microsatellite Primers for a Tetraploid Rainforest Tree. You will be happy to know I'm not going to read the rest of it to you. Uh, but right next to it was something brand new uh, with a you know, slightly different tone. The title was Beatrice Beaver. So my career has become this unexpected mashup. But honestly, I am glad and I'm grateful for it. Because here I thought that I had been writing about nature for a wide audience all the while missing one of the most important audiences of all, particularly important now, at a time when our children are becoming more distant from nature, spending less and less of their time outdoors. Important at a time when the Oxford Junior English Dictionary, the finest compendium of English designed for young readers, recently deleted over 40 nature words from the new edition. Words like acorn, dandelion, raven, willow, walnut, kingfisher, lark, gone. Replaced by words that better describe our increasingly indoor media and technology-focused lifestyles. So I hope that you will agree with me that in a, wor- in a world where bullet point just replaced buttercup in the dictionary, we all need Beatrice Beaver more than ever before. So in closing, I would like to share with you the story of Beatrice Beaver, uh, told in rhyme uh, one of my son's uh, new favorites. Beatrice Beaver briefly believed her biggest bicuspid was loose. She brushed it and flossed it and feared if she lost it, her diet would mainly be juice. (laughs) Being a beaver, she was a believer that wood was the best thing to gnaw. She dreaded the thought that her teeth would all rot and food would come only by straw. (laughs) But before she could scream, she awoke from her dream and laughed through the gap in her smile. Beaver bicuspids don't even exist. Their bite has a different style. With front teeth like chisels and molars to chew, a beaver chops wood like a hatchet. So she fixed up a bowl of branches and bark. For a beaver, no breakfast could match it.
I would like to speak of things Forterra does. And to do that, I have to talk about where we are in the world. Here, in this booming tech metropolis surrounded on all sides by extraordinary nature. It's an amazing situation. And Forterra works tirelessly to preserve and protect the land and places that make this region unlike any other. In its 25 years of existence, Forterra has completed more than 400 land deals, some of the newest, saving the Wayne Golf Course to create a huge new park at the top of Lake Washington. Saving a historic farm near Tacoma and preserving city folks' access to amazing berries and pumpkins. Saving piece by piece a full 3,000 acres over the Kitsap Peninsula, only 30 minutes by ferry from here. On top of that, Forterra is helping with one of our region's most serious problems, the housing crisis. To this end, Forterra is going after urban land to develop with partners as affordable housing. That's awesome. I'm Evan Flory Barnes. I'm a musician, composer, vocalist, songwriter, bass player, and a proud Seattleite and wanted to bring that Seattle spirit to the world. Well, I've born and raised here in Seattle. Being born and raised here, I feel like I've seen the city go through its transitions. I can remember the city's like old school things, but I can also I've also seen the city grow and expand. And what's kept me here is this feeling like there's something that can emerge out of this city in a way that nothing else can. I feel like there's an angle on nature and natural beauty, natural grandeur. I mean, if you look around, there's space for ideas to flow and exist and flourish, and there isn't this weight of an old American establishment. There is something new here that is a mixing of both this frontier spirit and this indigenous spirit and this multicultural spirit all coming together. And so I feel like there's an opportunity to create something really new that establishes this grounded but grand city. Thank you. So the piece that I'm um, premiering or playing is um, a piece called The Way Out. And I thought it's a song that I've had in mind for a long time and one of the first songs that I normally play in instrumental ensembles. But I'm going to be singing tonight and I feel like going to be bringing forth singing more often as my as a main form of expression, along with the arranging and the composing and the songwriting and, and still the bass playing. Um, but I believe that I always like to talk about the emotional content of place, of meaning, of the emotional significance we give spaces, moments, relationships, relationships, large and small relationships to loved ones, family, friends, lovers, parents, and how that all sort of informs this memory of a city and its attachment and its, and its clinging and its nostalgia to resistance to change and also being open to change. And so this song kind of takes a 
kind of abstract look at all this, and it's called The Way Out. And before I continue, I just want to thank these wonderful musicians for joining me and realizing this music in the moment. And before we continue, I'd like to dedicate this tune to my late father, who would have been 69 today, uh, Ralph Barnes. So this is his birthday. So thank you. Here we go.
Here, filmmaker and oral historian Jill Friedberg talks about stories she gathered at the central area Red Apple Grocery. So, uh, given the events of this week, it might seem a little strange to get in front of all of you and talk about a grocery store. This is my neighborhood grocery store. It's the... uh, Red Apple on 23rd and Jackson in the central area. And uh, it is the place where I have witnessed the most acts of humanity than anywhere else in this city. Within the year, it'll be gone. Vulcan has purchased the property and has plans for a couple of apartment buildings there. So as a uh, documentary filmmaker and oral historian, I decided to start recording stories with the people who um, work and shop at the Red Apple. I've been shopping there for 11 years, and usually it feels a lot more like a community center than a grocery store. So I want to share some little nuggets with you from some of the stories that I've been recording there. All the friends I grew up with that lived in the neighborhood don't live there anymore. Since everyone's gone, there's no nobody there so I just mostly see people at the Red Apple grocery store that store is community 
You know it because you, it's just like going to school. You see everybody there that you basically know. It's the place where at 10 o'clock at night, you're out of milk. That's where you're going to go. It's the first place where I would allow my kids to walk to. Her son, like you said, is autistic, so he has a hard time with a lot of stuff, you know. But uh, for some reason, he likes pies. And he likes pumpkin pie, you know. And she goes, like you said, every day to the Red Apple, and she will buy him a pie. You know, and sometimes she doesn't have enough money, and he doesn't understand that. He just wants the pie, so she goes outside, and sometimes people will give her money. Or sometimes the cashiers will complete the money, you know, or sometimes, you know, whoever, you know. Most days he gets his pie. <laughs> you know, a lot of those older people are done cooking. That's why they come in there every day. Black eyed peas and ham hocks and pig's feet and chitlins, greens. Well, we get a lot of them that come and just talk to us, just want to have conversations. I think it helps them a lot, you know, because they want to be social. I was 31, I believe. Yeah, I was 31 when I took over. And we had some um, white managers that were working for me. Well, they were lining up, you know, all the men would come up and line up on all the aisles and sit there and stare at the kids. <laughs> and I was like, look, come here. <laughs> all you guys go to the back. Because I know if I was a kid and I were to witness that, I'm stealing. <laughs> you know what I mean? If you're going to accuse me, I might as well steal. So what I ended up doing is going up there, opened up a bag of candy, and I gave every kid to walk by me a piece of candy. But at 31 years old, I'm this young cat, and a lot of my people who work for me were older. It was tough. It was tough. It wasn't worth giving up. I just continued to, you know, just to push and treat people like people and not like criminals. <laughs> so it is a community center. Um, it turns out the Red Apple is a place where people who've had their community torn apart go uh, to find each other. But I've realized something else in the process of recording this story. Um, if you imagine the central area like a giant constellation of interwoven stories and the brightest stars in that constellation are where the greatest number of stories intersect, then the red apple is one of those bright stars. It's where a lot of stories come together and intersect. Um, it's kind of like a portal into this constellation of neighborhood stories. I keep forgetting to show you the pictures while I'm talking. Everybody comes to the neighborhood grocery store, so this is where the stories of the neighborhood intersect in this portal into the constellation. So I created a community story project, and I called it Shelf Life. And um, I crawled through that portal and I started recording stories uh, from the neighborhood. I followed people who work and shop at the Red Apple out of the store and into their lives. <laughs> um, and into their homes and their histories. Uh, and it turns out that their stories are really, really important right now. We played for the Masons. We played for the YMCA's, we played for the cabarets, the 410 Supper Club, and Black and Tan. Those were the big clubs. I, I didn't have to work a job. I played music. I made real money. It was actually a working community. A lot of the local businesses, there were a number of restaurants, there were a number of barbershops, there was a record store, there was a drugstore, all local families. Uh, African-American, Asian, Chinese. 
we're all living in the central area, that's pretty much where we had to live. And everything you needed was in that neighborhood, practically. Well, there was a realtor here named Hardcastle. So what he did was that he would buy the home in a block and then sell it to a minority. They go next door and tell the neighbor next door, says, your value of your house is going to decrease because the black person just moved in next door. So naturally, they would sell. And they call it blockbuster. Just one, one, one. Just pretty soon we had that whole central area. And uh, other real estate companies, uh, Windermere and all those places, wouldn't even let you in the front door. Wherever there was a Safeway, there was a trade well in Seattle. They were always right across, and they wouldn't hire black people. We'd go there like at 5.30, 5.45, they close at 6, and fill up dozens of carts of perishable things. Roll up to the counter and then walk out the door. Big cart full of ice cream, cheese, eggs, milk, butter, stuff that you could not let sit overnight till the next shift came in. It had to be put back right now. So that meant the staff getting off of work couldn't leave. They had to go and do it and get paid overtime and cost the store money. And one of the things I remember about Welch's is it was really old and it had, I remember to get down to the plumbing parts, you needed to go down two stairs and I had the double stroller. So if I had to get a plumbing part, the guys would watch the twins, right? Like, they'd be like, well, we'll watch them. And that made me fall in love with this neighborhood, right? Like, oh, yeah, the hardware guys are watching the babies so I can go get my parts. Everybody knew everybody. Like, everybody in the neighborhood would come together and someone would have something going on. It was nothing for our family to throw a barbecue on the weekend to where, you know, the whole neighborhood would eventually be there. If it weren't for the fact that I grew up in this neighborhood, in this community, I don't think I would be the person I am today. It taught me most of everything in terms of my values and how I relate to people. I wouldn't trade it for the world. So these stories are important because it turns out that the people who built the central area over the last seven or eight decades did so despite tremendous obstacles, right? Redlining, job discrimination, predatory lending, inadequate infrastructure, the daily violence of racism. These were families that had uh, had their lives uprooted by World War II internment. These were families that had had their lives uprooted by the necessity to flee Jim Crow South. Um, and despite all that, they managed to build and create a interdependent, self-sufficient, multiracial, tenacious, innovative neighborhood. And I think we could learn a lot from that. I think that this city could learn a lot from that. But here's this thing that we do. And and when I say we, um, I'm speaking especially, though not exclusively, to white people like me. Um, I think we often don't see or recognize community when it's right in front of us. And um, we tend to say, well, when I got here, there was nothing here. And, um, and that's what's happening to the red apple. Nobody looks at the red apple for the first time and says, oh, that's a community anchor that's keeping people alive. Um, but it is. It is keeping people alive. Um, And it's also a microcosm for the neighborhood 
a community that for decades has kept people together and kept them alive. So when we remain ignorant of the central area's stories and histories while simultaneously making it really hard for the people who built it to stay there, that's us again saying, there was nothing here. But the stories prove us wrong. The stories are demonstrating that there's a lot there. And they're not just proving that there's a lot there, but I think that these stories could teach us how to grow a city with room enough for everyone. Thank you. Hello. Uh, so we've talked quite a bit about our region's amazing natural resources, and now our friends at the Wingluke Museum would like to call our attention to some of our re region's amazing human resources. Roll them. Empty your mind. Be formless, shapeless, like water. I fear not the man who has practiced 10,000 kicks once, but I fear the man who has practiced one kick 10,000 times. Defeat is a state of mind. No one is ever defeated until defeat has been accepted as a reality. The Do You Know Bruce exhibit provides new and untold perspectives about Bruce Lee and his deep connection to Seattle. For more information, go to wingluke.org. Here's artist Gabriel Campanario on the art of urban sketching. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for being here. What a beautiful sunny day we had in Seattle today, right? You see, sometimes we get so wrapped up into our own lives that we forget to look outside. We forget to see things with fresh eyes. When you've lived in a city for a while, you get used to it. Take those construction cranes, for example. Now that they are everywhere in Seattle, do you even notice them anymore? As an urban sketcher, however, little goes unnoticed for me. My desire to draw everything around me can turn any place or any situation into an opportunity to be creative. It wasn't always like that. I grew up in Barcelona, Spain, a magnificent metropolis by all accounts. Yet, I can't say I ever fully understood or appreciated its character. I wasn't looking at my surroundings with the eyes of an urban sketcher. As a newcomer to Seattle 10 years ago, though, everything felt new, and I became a compulsive sketcher. I picked up a notebook, just like this one, and started drawing everything around me. At first, most of my sketching happened during mundane commutes. You can see my own sketchbook there in that drawing. I noticed a lot of people carrying big mugs of coffee. <laughs> Peeking through the windows as my bus reached the Ship Canal Bridge, I drew the city skyline and those big gray clouds that are often inseparable from it. As I ventured outside Seattle on day trips with my family, my trusty pocket sketchbook would always be within reach. On an excursion to Whitby Island, I documented the ferry ride with this spread. 
Over the years, this plain approach to sketching turned out to be transformational. It really changed my life. Thanks to the internet, I connected with other drawing enthusiasts around the world who were also sketching their cities. Together, we now form a global community of thousands of sketchers. You can find us online if you Google urban sketchers. I've also published several books, and my drawings appear regularly in the Seattle Times since 2009. But more importantly, urban sketching has given me a better understanding of Seattle and the people who live here. It really has helped me find a sense of belonging. Everywhere I go, I keep my eyes peeled. I look at the way the light hits the buildings. I check out every piece of, of urban furniture. If I come across something like this street clock in Columbia City, it feels like hitting the sketching jackpot. I like to sketch all buildings so I can remember what they, what they look like before they are demolished. The historic Greyhound bus station downtown is now history. The outer walls of the Troy Laundry in South Lake Union have been preserved, but this view from the old Seattle Times offices across the street is gone forever. Every chain link fence piques my curiosity. What will replace this old storefront in Belltown? A sketch in Seattle is also like taking a class in history. Every day I'm out there with my sketchbook. On a less sunnier November day than today, I visited the point on Alki Beach in West Seattle where the first European settlers landed in 1851. I've learned the significance of the aviation industry sketching at the Museum of Flight Restoration Center where volunteers spend thousands of hours to restore an, an aircraft so it could fly again. My sketchbook has also given me license to approach strangers and learn from their experiences. Diehard Seahawks fans aren't as crazy as I had imagined. <laughs> I met this friendly couple at the Hawk's Nest in Century Phil. At a parking lot in Interbay, I chatted with young and old homeless Seattleites and learned about their day-to-day -day struggles. As an intrepid newspaper artist, I try to challenge myself to sketch in any possible situation, whatever it takes to get to know what life is in this great region. Once, for example, I was attacked by goats while sketching horses in a farm in Briar. I've also faced angry turkeys at the home of some Seattle urban farmers. And I took a dip into the sound when my kayak flipped as I was coming back from sketching the long-gone Calacala Ferry. Now, seriously, being an urban sketcher is worth putting yourself in that kind of danger. Sketching is a great way to get to know people from all walks of life. The barber at Fisherman's Terminal, the dog master who works nearby, the folks who work at Dick's Drive-In. Urban sketching has made me aware of the rich cultural diversity of Seattle, where I can explore an authentic Chinese garden one day and find every food flavor on the planet 
in food trucks that can be found all over the city these days. This one's uh, at Wesley Park downtown. Now, a word for those who think they can draw a straight line. You don't need to be an artist to do what I do. Sketching is a form of visual documentation that is accessible to all. Sketching tools can be as sophisticated as the iPad I used to make this sketch of the food trucks or the one of the pipeless market crane that you saw at the beginning of my talk or as simple as pen and a piece of paper. Uh, my favorite tools are still fountain pens loaded with waterproof ink and some watercolors. Sometimes I try to add the watercolors on the spot. Sometimes I do it later at home. The purpose of urban sketching is to experience a moment, no matter how ordinary. No matter as ordinary, no matter how ordinary. Like waiting for the bus, I made this sketch um, of King Street Station um, in those cranes again. You know that you can see everywhere. The idea of urban sketching is to slow down and to pay attention to your immediate environment. Sometimes I wish my pen and a sketchbook had been my regular companions growing up in Barcelona. Sketching such a beautiful city may have kept me around longer, but I'm not looking back. I'm drawn to Seattle now, excited to keep discovering my adopted hom hometown one sketch at a time. Thank you, and watch out for those goats. <laughs> Next up from Ampersand Live, Seattle Youth Poet Ambassador Emrys Foster. Hey, how are you all doing? Good? Yeah, good. Um, I really liked the like whispering that was going on around here earlier. Can we just it was it was a really nice ambience. Can we try that? Just whisper to the person next to you. Ask them about their day. Tell them about the last time you got food poisoning or something. Okay, okay, stop. I'm, I'm just messing with you. Don't, don't do that. I don't like that. Anyways, as the, I think, token teenage contributor here, or the token member of the selfie generation, if you will, I think it's nice for me to do my part to bring you back into and simultaneously back out of the urban landscape that we're living in, which I will be trying to do via a poem that I'll be reading off my phone because I am the kind of person who uses my phone at an event like this. <laughs> and my mom just texted me telling me to take off my headphones. So here. <laughs> Hi, mom. <laughs> Anyways, this is a poem called A Night on the Town or The Noctivagant. And for those of you who somehow don't know a word that actually isn't in the dictionary, um, Noctivagant is an adjective meaning wandering in the night. The darkness falls on sharp city lights. The night has chosen these students, these children and lovers and writers it will teach to look out the window and wonder. In their dreams, in the rocks that lie soft under fog, the night has chosen these cemeteries, these headstones, these skeletons, these worms. And there will be a student tonight who awakens from their dreams, not entirely, not yet, to rise from their mattress and wander outside, to follow the pull of the moon like the tide. Through the city and the alleys, there are cracks in the cemeteries. A vagabond wanders across the railroad tracks. Is it me or is it you? 
Gain some distance in the darkness, and when you stand in the meadow, look back at the city. The buildings and the sky are one and the same, and the sharp city lights are no more than stars. You are fierce, Noctivagant. Show no fear, Noctivagant. The crunch and snap of twigs nearby should know to fear you. Just follow the night, Noctivagant. Obsessively learn all you can in the dark, like the eyes of the owl above and unblinking. Learn from the stars while the night is on the town. Learn how to live, Noctivagant. Learn all the things you can never understand and whisper them back to the night. Nothing is in your way through strobe lights and sirens demanding your attention, cars full of drunks with bad music too loud. The night is silent, Noctivagant. In silence you walk, in silence you watch. Shadows claim the buildings like vines, and nothing will ever be the same. The rings under your eyes like trees denote not fatigue, but wisdom. Wander on, Noctivagant, through the streetlights and cemeteries until you find what you are searching for. The night drapes its cloak over the city, and the moon turns everything magic. The witching hour has fallen, and there are ghosts in the subway tunnels. Are you one of them? Thank you. Here's naturalist and storyteller Jordan Imani Keith reading her poem, All Waters. All Waters. Once upon a time in the long ago, not long ago. Once upon a time in the long ago, not long ago. Once upon a time in the long ago, not long ago. The people were water. Some of them were the shape of rain. Some of them were the shape of ice. Some of them were invisible. Stepping out of their robes of rain, they would sing, I enter you without leaving. I am the sound of a circle. Whom, whom, whom. I and the sound of a dream. Push, push. But they didn't know why. When the rain sang, the invisible water danced so fiercely, their feet lifted from the ground. When they rose as high as they could, they would sing, I enter you without leaving. I am the sound of a circle. I am the sound of a dream. But they didn't know why. This was their life. Every day, it was good. But one day, a complaint entered the world. The shape of ice cracked as they spoke. You people only sing and dance. You enter without leaving, but you don't know why. Do you know more than we? The shape of rain rose up, but their voice was not singing. It was getting louder. Do you know more than we, they demanded. We are the body of rain. 
The shape of ice did not answer at first. They held the heat of their thoughts below the surface until they began to sweat. From under the robe of ice, droplets of humans stepped out. Thousands of thousands of thousands began singing, we are our ancestors, we are our children, we are our ancestors, we are our children. But they didn't know why. You see, long ago, memory had no form. It's Hips jangled through the void. Dew gathered on its spine. Its bones hummed maroon circles. Until faces emerged from the sound. Until feet stepped out of the droplets. Ankles. Then long bones. Knees bent for marching, stomping, dancing. You see, before memory had form, we dreamed rain. But we didn't know why. As the children of ice kept marching, kept stomping, kept dancing, they encircled the shape of rain and held them. Rain resisted. But the children of ice sang louder, we are our ancestors, we are our children, we are our ancestors, we are our children, we are our ancestors, we are our children. Until very little rain was left. Suddenly, the invisible moved. Of a circle. I am the sound of your dream. We are the body of water. We must not fight. But the children of ice resisted. We are our ancestors. We are our children, they sang. But they didn't know why. Then the invisible saw their feet were carbon, though they wore the robe of water. The invisible pulled off their robe of water and leapt into the air, leaving some of them as heaps of dry mountains and valleys until the invisible fell upon them. Some of them remain mountains and valleys. Some, the water entered, and their robe of water became a robe of skin. Now we have memory. Now we know why. Once upon a time, long ago, not long ago, once upon a time, we were all water. Thank you.
please welcome Brandy Laird. All right. Actually, it was fascinating just watching you simply walk somewhere. Thank you for that. Uh, you're welcome. Thank you. I'm like, do people expect you to like show up and you know arrive at a place such as this? Uh, definitely, absolutely. Um, it's a pretty common misconception that if you do parkour, you just parkour everywhere. Um, <laughs> but it's not like that. The the jumping and the running um, is not even the majority of the discipline. Uh, there's there's so much more to it. Um, and when you live it, you have a time and place for running and jumping and a time for walking and, and talking. I mean, imagine Bruce Wayne flipping onto the stage. That's not really what he would do. Yes. Well, astounding. And, like, is Seattle a, a friendly to parkour city? Uh, absolutely. Actually, we've, um, we being uh, Parkour Visions, we're, we're a group, and we've made quite a the positive relationship with the city um, after enough years of being in the parks. But also there's a lot of diversity. Uh, you have the, the smooth, organic trees at Volunteer Park and the rusted remnants of industry at Gasworks Park and, of course, the brutal, abrasive <laughs> playground that is Freeway Park. So it's, it's a good place to enjoy. <laughs> Be careful. Okay. <laughs> um, how have your uh, parkour skills uh, played out or ha- come in handy with just day-to-day living? Yeah, um, one of the original ideas behind parkour, the original philosophy is be strong to be useful. It's not just for you, it's not for the sake of entertainment um, or, or gaining um, attention. <laughs> um, it is to train oneself to do better. So I've, I mean, I've carried groceries for people, I've pushed, broken down cars, I've crawled into small, smarmy spaces to retrieve keys and phones and ID cards, um, but, yeah, one of the, uh, the one that stands out the most, actually, was when I first started training, um, only a few months, actually, I had been living in Ballard, and I had been commuting to the Soto for my job. So I just get on the bus in the metro one day, and those of you who ride the metro know there's the, the back door and the seats that face the back door. So I sit down in the seat, and I carry on with my business, and uh, as usual, I'm watching everybody get on the bus, and uh, two very jovial, very drunk elderly folk get on um, down in Ballard, just holding on to each other the whole whole meal deal, middle of the day. So I, okay, there you go. Um, a male and a female. And partway down the line, he gets off, and she continues riding. And we get down to Pioneer Square, and this was, I was already naturally doing this, um, you know, sitting in the seat facing the doors. You can also see the windows of the storefront, and you can see the reflections of what's happening up the street and down the street and just kind of what's going on. So I'm watching this, this reflection, and the, the woman, um, again, elderly and actually quite frail, very small, stumbles her way off the bus and then stumbles out of sight, completely out of sight. I couldn't see her in the reflection. I couldn't see her from where I was sitting. I see one man in the reflection, like, reaching out with wide eyes. Uh, And in that moment, I recognized that. I checked the mirror to the bus driver in the front of the bus. He didn't see it. So I I act. I, I move. I step out the bus. I see she, uh, <clears throat> she was under the wheel of the bus, the, the double wheels, just, just almost like she was supposed to be there, just kind of snuggled in. <laughs> and so I 
nab her up, and she's incredibly light. I throw her to this guy whose arms are outstretched, like, what is going on? And I get back on the bus, and this all happens in the time. It, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> it all happened, uh, the bus, and they closed, and that was as much. So I'm sitting, looking around, Did anyone see that? Driver, no. Anybody, no. No. Um, and, you know, it wasn't, you know, I didn't jump anywhere. I didn't run anywhere. But for me, that is a means to an end. And the end is to be strong, to be useful, is to trust my response and be willing to act and make the decision when I have to make the decision and then go, be strong, to be useful. Well, delightful meeting you. Thank you so much. Brandy Laird. Here's Whidbey Island-based photographer Kevin Horan. Yes, those are goats. Goats screaming like humans. And we laugh, because they're funny. And frankly, they seem really undignified. So I want to bring you another look at them. I give you Sydney. Say hello to Mr. Beasley. I'd like you to meet Sherlock. I never paid much attention to goats and sheep before I moved to Whidbey Island. I realized those were my neighbors, literally. And they had all these different voices, like the ones you heard. And it occurred to me, these are individuals. So Lizzie comes into the studio. She wants a portrait made to hang on the wall. At least that was kind of the idea of this project. What what happens if you take them seriously? (laughs) You give each one the full treatment, the full respect, photographically speaking, that you would give a human subject. Once you do, there's this effect. It's the personality effect that takes over. That's a non-human person, right? (laughs) Emmy becomes, for some of you, in this picture, a personage. And when you look into their eyes, you look into that face, you ask yourself, what or who am I really looking at? Am I connecting with another sentient creature? Do I know something about Layla's personality? (laughs) I don't know. Uh, Because I began to think uh, about all the hundreds and thousands of human portraits I've made, and I realize it's the very same process. I don't know, and I'm the one doing it. So, uh, with any of these subjects, I, I... 
wrap the subject in the trappings of style and play off the deep history we all have of looking at millions of pictures before. And I capture a moment. And then the viewer does the rest. That's you. You create a personage out of a two-dimensional image. Every portrait is a fiction. Okay, I admit, all this is a trick, right? I, I remind you that each of these pictures shows you just a fraction of a second. That these are farm animals thrashing about, looking for food, they're senselessly roaming around, and they're only frozen in a gesture. I'm not talking about a Photoshop trick, but it's the trick that photography has always done to steal a moment. So maybe this isn't about the goats or the photographer. Maybe it's about you and what you are creating. On the other hand, who's going to say Jake doesn't have a personality? <laughs> if you've had a, ever had a dog, I'll bet you're like me. I used to have this great little Jack Russell Terrier. And, and I would look at her, I'd stare and stare into those eyes. And, and finally, I, I couldn't help myself. I'd, just, I'd grab her by the fur, and I'd look right at her, and I'd say, Lulu, what are you thinking? <laughs> I never knew. So I'm asking you to help me out with this conundrum. I, I'm kind of mixed up. Would you look at some of these creatures and tell me what you see. Take Carl. What sort of character is Carl? Anybody? Does this guy have a story to tell? He has... Is he observing me? What's he doing? Does anybody have an idea? What's that? Yeah. You, you just... You want to fill in the blanks, don't you? But can you know anything about him by looking at his photograph? Or Poppy? Poppy's lived a life, I think. <laughs> what do you think? Do you know anything about her? Any ideas? A grand... You, you got it. Exactly. All right. So what about Opie? Is there someone in there? Would you say yes? Okay. Or Ben? Where's Ben? Oh, there he is. What is going on in that brain? Inside the goat mind. I've been asked a number of times if my intent with this project is to promote animal rights. No, that's not my intent. I do happen to have a hunch that in a hundred years or so, people will look back on our treatment of animals now as tyrannical, atrocious, and cruel. We have a long history of seeing all of creation with ourselves at the center or even at the top. But that's not the argument I'm making. I'm arguing for living with the blinds up, for paying attention, for keeping in mind that we don't know what we don't know, and maybe for bridging the species gap.
when we draw a hard line between humans and all the others, we make the world a smaller place for us, a place where we spend all our efforts obsessed with our own tribe, a less interesting place. Why would we do that? Thank you very much. Next up, Seattle-based architect, educator, and activist Rick Moeller. From goats to housing, only at Ampersand Live, folks. <laughs> if you live in Seattle and you're at this event, you've probably heard of HALA. If you haven't, you've been asleep for the 16 months since the mayor's office released it as a way of addressing our housing affordability crisis. And I decided that it would be a great topic for a design studio, an architectural design studio at the UW where I teach. We decided to look at the Wallingford neighborhood. It's just north of Lake Union. We did so for a couple of reasons. One is I live there and I know it. Another, sorry. Okay. I won't try the... um, laser. Uh, Another is that it has adequate access to transit, to parks, uh, to commercial space, to restaurants, to booze. Makes it a good place for increased housing density and affordability. But it's a neighborhood that has a reputation of being resistant to change, (laughs) and this reputation is not without merit. But change is happening in the neighborhood nonetheless. 800-square-foot single-story bungalows are being torn down and replaced by new single-family houses, some of which are as large as 5,500 square feet and, for some unknown reason, have two master bedroom suites. So the studio asked a simple question, what if we were to increase housing density and affordability within the neighborhood, but to do so in a way that would actually be of benefit to all neighbors? And this is four of those projects. The first is by Anders, who is actually here tonight, and I'm sure I've just completely embarrassed him. And he's interested in the traditional mom-and-pop corner grocery store with apartments above. And he asked, what if we allowed some of these buildings that we have successfully zoned out of existence in our single-family zones and allowed zero-lot-line buildings with commercial at the base, six to eight apartments above, The commercial space could be used, for example, as co-working space so that one wouldn't have to work from home, but they wouldn't have to commute downtown either. Their commute would essentially be walking around the corner. Or a cafe, which would be a new destination in the neighborhood where you might meet a neighbor for coffee. Or daycare, so that instead of hauling your kids across town, you just simply haul them across the street and pick them up at the end of the day. Kala became very interested in the Meridian Park in the neighborhood and its rich tradition of urban agriculture. It's the home of the Wallingford um, Farmer's Market, the Tilth Pea Patch and Greenhouse, and a legacy orchard in the park. But she also noticed that at the southern end of the park, showed within the dashed line, the single-family houses didn't have much of a relationship to the park, and they also limited entry to it from the south. She asked, what if there was a much more dense multifamily development 
at the end of the park, but not just any multifamily development, something that would build upon the rich legacy of urban agriculture within the park, something that would greatly expand the neighborhood pea patches and the legacy of orchards there and increase the pedestrian accessibility from the south into the park so that when entering, you'd be flanked on both sides by new neighborhood pea patch gardens on rooftops and greenhouses and projecting balconies, gardens would grow. From within the park, instead of looking back at the sides of houses and fences, it would give the impression that the park was actually flowing between the buildings and back into the neighborhood itself. Jachi became very interested in the fact that in the northern part of the neighborhood, some of the blocks are very long, some in excess of 800 feet long. And she asked the question, what if there was a more pedestrian scale that was introduced by using a green pedestrian network of pedestrian ways that would cut through the middle of the blocks and provide a new place for affordable housing? The way it would work is you would purchase two, three, or four parcels that would be back-to-back so that they would extend from street to street. Within those parcels, you would have a new pedestrian way, and along that pedestrian way, a new form of smaller-scale, affordable housing, one-, two-, and three-bedroom units. The new pedestrian way would be intimate, would have stoops along it, would be much more like an old English muse. The houses wouldn't have yards. Instead, they'd have rooftop decks overlooking the green pathway below. And in case you haven't figured it out already, this whole gig is about the invasion of young hipsters. (laughs) And finally, John became very interested in a huge surface parking lot, a full two blocks long, just north of Lincoln High School, owned by Seattle Public Schools, a half block off the main commercial street of North 45th. And he asked, what if the parking were to be taken from the surface and put below grade? In fact, you would expand the amount of available parking. And above, you would build three courtyard buildings that would be a combination of market rate and affordable housing. The courtyard buildings would be designed in such a way that pedestrians from throughout the neighborhood could easily move between them and through them by way of intimate courtyards, each with their own character. So the corners of the blocks might be carved away so that it would increase visibility from one side of the block to the other. The perimeter might be made up of row houses, each with their own entries and stoops and gardens to enliven the street, and access into the courtyard might provide a sense of intrigue as to the more secluded space beyond. So we concluded the studio by asking yet another simple question. What if we stopped having the seemingly endless conversation as to whether or not we should increase housing density and affordability in all of our neighborhoods, as we ultimately must, and instead shifted the conversation to how can we creatively increase housing density and affordability in a way that benefits everyone. Thanks. Good evening. I am not Brenda Peterson. I am Tracy Conway. 
And uh, Brenda regrets that she can't be here this evening, but I am delighted that I get to share her words with you. Dark, and I'm driving a Seattle neighborhood side street so perfectly domesticated, trim lawns, well-tended shade gardens, recycling bins lined up like green guardians. Darting through my headlights, a hunchbacked animal scoots across the street, toppling those tidy bins. Almost human black eyes stare right at me as a raccoon chomps and chows down on a burrito. Then two more tiny hunchbacks scramble across the street and study their mother's garbage feast. Limp french fries, peaches, a half-eaten Starbucks bento box. Their striped bandito faces are so curious, so endearing, so brand new. I think, oh, let them be. We've all got to eat. Idling so as not to spook the kids, I watch the mother raccoon defy gravity and climb straight up the side of a tall garage. Not a tree, but a spacious flat for three. One of the kits quickly follows her, yet the runt of her litter keeps slipping off the slick gutter pipe and sliding back down. With his five tiny fingers but no thumb, the grounded kit's hands and feet still can't get a toehold on the pipe. The kit calls out in terror, a high-pitched trill. The mother raccoon encourages her kit up the steep climb. After all, Raccoons can safely fall as much as 35 to 40 feet and stick the landing. Finally, the kit wraps his ringed tail around the pipe and inches up to the roof. The two kits survey all below them, their expressions proud, possessive. This is their home, too. Urban wildlife. That's what scientists call raccoons that are now thriving in our cities. Raccoons are fascinating scientists as they move into our urban areas in record numbers. They stay close to their many dens, usually traveling only in a three-block radius. Raccoon mothers are affectionate and devoted to their kits. Females often den together in what is aptly called a nursery. Busy single moms... Raccoons also share the chore of kit-sitting their babies in a scene reminiscent of what you might find at any human playground. To watch raccoons and kits is to observe maternal devotion and patience. Kits hungrily nurse, then tug and pounce on their mother as she impossibly tries to nap. (laughs) While the rest of the world sleeps, raccoons roll and wrestle jump and race around each other like furry gymnasts. Backyard planters, gardening tools, even a scooter can tempt a raccoon to invent new games for nocturnal fun. Excuse me, fun. Wildlife photographer Robin Lindsay even discovered a raccoon kit at dawn thumping around a soccer ball in the backyard. Raccoons' front feet are nimble and manipulative as human hands, They are so inquisitive that raccoon brains are developing more complexities to meet the challenges and secret pleasures of city nightlife. So 
they are a lot like humans who have evolved by exploring, hunting, problem solving, and play. New research reveals that raccoons actually prefer urban living. Some people wrongheadedly feed raccoons, which deprives them of the dignity of making their own living. Some people fear raccoons as rabid, but only one person in the U.S. has ever died from a raccoon trans- transmitting the dreaded disease. Some of us mistakenly call raccoons nuisance animals. But to dismiss raccoons is to lose what is most wild about our cities. Why not consider these sometimes rowdy, nightlife-loving, and keenly intelligent raccoons as a sign of a healthy, urban wildlife habitat that we can all learn to share, like good neighbors. Thank you. Thank you very much. My name is Tomo Nakayama. Uh, in March of 2014, I was invited by Town Hall to be their artist in residence. I was given the keys to this beautiful building for three months and access to all of their programs and events. My job was simply to reflect on this experience and create something in response. During the residency, I wrote and recorded the songs, which became my first solo album, Fog on the Lens. I also created a video documentary called Open Room, which you can find on YouTube. Um, uh, In the video, you see a day in my life as a resident and the actual songwriting process of the song I'm playing today, also called Open Room. The theme of the song is openness, the free, supportive, communal exchange of ideas from many different diverse voices and perspectives. This exchange of ideas is why Town Hall exists and the reason why we are all here today. During my residency, I got to witness talks with Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor and author George Saunders, each talking about their childhoods and their creative process. I heard Councilwoman Chama Sawant talking about socialism and raising the minimum wage in Seattle. I heard Ann Jones talk about the everlasting scars of war, the horrifying reality of poor immigrants, blacks, whites, Hispanics, lured into the military by the prospect of college and left to deal with the crippling reality of PTSD. I heard DJ John Richards and writer Charles Cross talk about the legacy of Kurt Cobain and the effect his suicide had on Seattle music. And in the same room the following night, I heard Pastor Pat Wright talk about how her experiences as a black woman during the Civil Rights Movement influenced her work with the Total Experience Gospel Choir. All these voices and different people I never would have encountered if I just stayed at home in the safe bubble of Facebook looking at the timeline full of my little curated circle of friends who think and act and vote exactly like I do. The only way to understand people who are different from us is to encounter them in person and to hear their stories. I had this revelation while I was watching the results of this ugly, hate-filled election, red states and blue states. 
divided by distance and fear. It really underscored to me why spaces like Town Hall are so important. (laughs) Knowledge, Knowledge is the key to overcoming fear and hatred. Openness is the best, most profoundly important virtue of our nation, and openness is the virtue we must now fight to protect. We must listen to each other and see each other as we are, for good and for bad. We must speak up and make our voices heard, tell our own stories, and work together for the greater good of our community, for our country, for our planet. That is the only way to create true and lasting meaningful change. So let's move forward, speak out with openness, let our voices be heard, and listen to each other with love and kindness.
Thank you, Tomo. That was, your words were exactly what we all needed to hear. And you're playing. I don't know where you are right now. You're back there somewhere. But you're playing and, you, and all. I, I can't imagine how else could have been better to end this evening tonight. Wasn't he terrific? So, hello again. I'm Gene Duvernoy, president of Forterra. And we just heard from Tomo, we have just finished an election that was way, way, way too much about our differences. But here in the Pacific Northwest, we still know how to come together. Yes, we do. And, uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> and and I, want, I want to leave you with this, please. It, now is the time, now is the moment in time when we need, need to capture the hope, the openness, the goodwill in our region that we still mightily have in our region and in this room tonight to make this great place, this really great place, 
this special corner of the earth even better for all of us, for everyone. And so that's what makes the Pacific Northwest, our community, what it is. And, and we can do that. And despite our concerns about the last few days, we should work harder to make that happen. So, look, thank you for coming. Please join me in thanking Florangela Davila, the amazing, <laughs> cur- <laughs> the amazing curative ampersand. Hey, Florangela, stand up. Come on. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Ampersand Magazine is a production of Forterra, a Seattle-based conservation and community-building organization. Ampersand Live took place on November 10th at Town Hall Seattle. Thanks again to Jenny Cecil Moore for our recording. Tune in again soon.